When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From Heads of Studios in Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words. Irish. Irish words. Words from Ireland. I am Derek O'Shea, and I'm very delighted and excited to be joined today by a special guest over here from the United States of America. Her name is Cece Byer. Hi. For those of you who um, might not be familiar with Cece from her online activities, she is an Shano singing Irish dancing rabbi. Ta-da! Some people find that an unusual, unusual combination, Cece. I believe it might be. Yeah, I think I'm the only... Um, the only Irish dancing rabbi that I know and the only Irish singing rabbi that I know. Um, if there's anyone else out there, do reach out to me, Rabbi Cece on Twitter. Um, but I have found other Irish Jews and Irish speaking Jews via Twitter. So that's been really fun. And it's a, it's a big, big community and a lot of people realize. I guess so. Maybe we should start a little Jewish Geltacht somewhere. Absolutely. Thanks, Turner. So yeah, I'm. So I've always, I've always had an interest in. I suppose I've had a lifelong interest in in, uh, in Jewish culture. I grew up in West Farnham, just up from du- Dublin's largest synagogue, possibly Dublin's only synagogue were op- operational one now, or is, is there more? As far as I know, there is an Orthodox Jewish community in Dublin, as well as the Progressive Jewish community, which I'm actually really excited. I'm spending Friday night Shabbat with this this week. Um, but beyond that, um, there's not a whole lot. Um, as I know, there was a community in Cork, and the synagogue closed in 2016. So. Um, we um, in Ireland we have a kind of a, we have an idea of Irish dancing and shano singing and some of these traditions were were in the nineteenth century under great pressure from, you know, the Brits, and but but these some of these traditions were preserved by the Irish community in America and actually were came back and were formalised through that process. But we often still think though that there's a big difference between the Irish dancing world in the in Ireland and the Irish dancing world in the United States. Specifically, obviously, Riverdance was when Riverdance kicked off in 1994. The leads were both from the Irish American world. Yeah, um, it's always. I know that there's a little bit of controversy about that. That Gene Butler um, and you know them be, and uh, Michael Flatley being being American born um, and coming in and the Riverdance. Um, the particularly the segment in Eurovision was meant to be a little bit, a little bit testing the tradition, a little bit pushing the boundaries, and it was very much on purpose. And so the combination of that sort of taking away from the tradition, um, and the fact that it was Americans who were doing it was seen as a little bit risque. Um, and now it's become very much the norm that the show dancing uh, becomes a progression for a lot of Irish dancers to start out doing the more traditional um, steps. And of course, you could argue that a lot of the 
current steps and the way the choreography has evolved, the much more athletic uh, style that is out there now is a little bit less traditional to begin with um, and possibly, um, you know, influenced by all of the, the show dancing that people have come to love. Um, but the progression is for, for kids who are, who are talented in it to then take off and do some of these shows. And you'll also see things like, I don't know if you're familiar with fusion fighters. Um, oh. They're this very, very cool group of um, group of Irish dancers who, who bend the rules a little bit more and do a lot of the percussive dancing and a lot of crossover style with tap and with hip hop and with a lot of other rhythmic dancing. And, you know, if you look at some of the Irish central and those sorts of online um, media, you'll see a lot of people taking issue with what they've done to the tradition and a lot of people doing, as you do here with Irish language, saying that the opposite is true, that it's meant to evolve, it's meant to grow, it's meant to be reinterpreted and rediscovered every day. Um, and those are those moments where things like fusion fighters and the show dancing become really cool and really exciting for young folks to stay connected to the tradition, but also saying that tradition doesn't stagnate. And mm -hmm. actually, as a rabbi, that's something that I find to be really cool um, because a lot of the work that I do with Jewish texts and with Jewish tradition is to say that Judaism is a living, breathing organism that, mm. um, you know, has a beautiful, beautiful tradition and we keep it alive, but we also adapt it and modify it and make it breathe in the modern world. So mm. I guess there's a parallel there. I didn't think I was going to find, but I did. It's <laughs> <laughs> like that. And this is the thing, because I think when I remember Claude is one of our regulars on the show uh, is, um, is an Irish dancer, has been an Irish dancer since she was small. And one of the things that we were discussing why there isn't like a kind of a global institute similar to the Bolshoi or uh, equivalents in ballet in Ireland. And one of the theories was that actually you know, Irish dancing is meant to be danced rather than watched. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, and you're talking about Cloda and starting as a kid. Um, I actually didn't start until I was an adult. Oh. Um, I, you know became very interested in Irish music and Irish culture and whatnot when I was a preteen. Um, but I didn't have a chance to start because by the time I wanted to start, I was a little too old at 13, 14 to even start. And yeah. it makes me sad to think that someone at 12 or 13 or 14 can be told they're too old to do anything. Yeah. You're never too old to do anything. It's <laughs> never too late to try something new. And so I became involved. Actually, I was in rabbinical school in New York City. And I found that the Irish Art Center in New York had a beginner Irish dance class for adults. And it fit into my crazy schedule. So I popped on down to, to the Hell's Kitchen area and started to take this class. And then the teacher there said, you know, we have a school and we have an adult class. And I was like, okay. And then I started to do all my basic steps. And then I found out that he said, you know, it's a competitive sport. You should go. There are adult competitions. I said, no. And then I got hooked. And 10 years later, I've been doing this. Mm -hmm. um, it's been my hobby. Um, I'm now considered, um, adults are a little bit different in the Irish dance world, but I'm dancing at adult championships style championship level uh, dances and having a really great time meeting all of these different adults who, for whatever reason, are were attracted to the dancing, whether it be river dance and the phenomenon of that, or in some way connected to their culture and to the music. Um, and, you know, being a part of the Irish sort of Irish American scene and the Irish scene, I would say that um, I've been really lucky to meet dancers, especially adult dancers online and in person from all over. Even I have a couple of friends in Israel who are doing Irish dancing over there. Um, so it's pretty cool. Oh, and so tell us more because we've, you've been over here at FLAS and other kind of on other events. And how do you see that the um, Irish dancing scene in Ireland compares to uh, that in the United States? Um, 
That's a great question. So um, there was this perception that the Irish dancing in America is much more about the wigs and the glitz and the glamour. Um, but I've been watching, you know, some of the TV shows about um, Irish dance dresses and Irish dance competitions here and lots of documentaries. And the couple of times I've been to Feshina and Flana here, um, it seems pretty similar. I think that there's, you know, the dance itself is universal, the choreography, you know, with the internet and with the ability to see all kinds of dancers from all over. You can go onto YouTube and watch your favorite dancers and keep track of their um, careers, much like you would any other sport or athlete, athletic star. Um, it's um, and you know, young young girls, many of them, I'm one of them, love the sparkle and love the uh, love the glitz and the glamour of it, but also love. For me, it's about the music and feeling the music. I started as a kid as a ballet dancer and a tap dancer and came into Irish dance later. But there's also something beautiful about the costume and the the the, the sparkles and all of those things. So those things are universal. Um, and what I like the best about Irish dance, and I've seen in both here and there, is this combination of the two. It's it's a it's an art form that's also very athletic, and it's very empowering for for young dancers to feel that they can be both. That you can be athletic, you can be strong, and you can be beautiful at the same time. Yeah, I think some lads get fierce slagging for um, for doing Irish dance when they're teenagers, but it gives them enormous access to girls. I was about to say, guys, if you are listening. Women love guys who can dance. This is the thing, and it's the fellas get so much slagging when, when they're younger. But uh, when you there's, there's not many things that like at the amount of weddings you'll go to, probably six or seven a year when you're in your late twenties, through to your mid thirties, and somebody person, gets up and dance. dance yeah, impresses everyone straight away. <laughs> exactly. Well, in my dance class back back home, um, I dance with the Mary Moore School of Irish Dance in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. And in my class, in the in the prelim champ class that I take, there are three young young lads in that class. Mm. Um, a shout out to the guys in my class, and they're phenomenal. And I hope that you know whatever they go through to be, you mm. know, guys as Irish dancers. I I hope they realize how very, very hot we find them. So, <laughs> yeah. If you look at the reaction of a fellow who can dance at a wedding compared to late at night at a party, a fellow grabbing a guitar and starting playing, it's like, oh God, put it away, you fucking useless prick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whereas dancing always impresses people. Yeah. And that's the cool thing about things like fusion fighters. These guys are doing this really, really crazy percussive dance. And um, it's great to watch and it's great to, to, I hope it inspires other kids to do it too, young guys too. And how did you, and you just got, you got into it just from that from, from that way, isn't it? And you also got into shadow singing, isn't it? Yeah, I did. So, um, so when I was a kid, about twelve or so, um, back in the states, um, we had you could at the grocery store, you would get these encyclopedias, the Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia, and you would buy a certain volume would be available every week or every couple of weeks. And the joke was in my family, I think we stopped after the I volume because I was very interested in Israel and Ireland growing up. Um, <laughs> we said next is India. I mm -hmm. had to, you know, former yeah. British colonies that are, have start with I. Um, so. I got very interested in Irish music um, at about 12 or so, believe it or not, through the musical Finian's Rainbow, which actually has nothing to do with Ireland at all. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh, yeah. It's Francis Ford Coppola's first film, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. With Fred Astaire and Petula Clark. Um, gorgeous film. Loved it. Had nothing to do with Ireland, except they were from Ireland and had terrible accents, um, as mm. per the Hollywood custom. And, um, and from there, I'm, I got into trad music. I found, um, 
Uh, Fiona Ritchie had this show on NPR on National Public Radio called The Thistle and Shamrock. Mm. And I learned all about Irish music from Alton to Clannad because, of course, it was the 90s when I was a kid and mm-hmm. Clannad was very big and Enya. Um, but to Silly Wizard, Scottish music, um, everything in between. And um, Mick Maloney was in Philadelphia where I grew up. So I got into the music first. And wouldn't you know, there were two girls in my junior high school, my junior, my middle school, who played the Irish harp. And they told me about this mythical thing called the flaw and (laughs) that you'd go to this thing and you would compete. And then if you got to go to Ireland and you'd compete against other people. And I had grown up playing the violin and never understood competing. You play in an orchestra, like what is this whole? And I, I learned since then, you know, in sort of Irish cultural arts, there's very much this, this, gathering together and sharing of your your music, but it happens through a competitive venue, the dancing, the singing, all of those things. So at that point, I started to, you know, I'm a singer. I've been singing my whole life, classically trained soprano. Part of my work as a rabbi, I lead services and do liturgical music. Um, And I decided I loved this language and I wanted to learn it. And I wanted to learn to sing in it properly. So of course, as a kid, I would transliterate and try to sing along to all Mm -hmm. of these songs and get out the liner notes back when you had to buy physical CDs and I would learn all this music. And as I got older, I just sort of stuck with it. And like I said, I, when I got old enough to sort of um, try the dancing too, I added that to my my repertoire. But in the last couple of years, it actually, um, my impetus for starting learning the Irish language was um, one, an interest in minority languages, having an interest, my, my husband speaks and does a little bit of Yiddish work and Yiddish being another sort of endangered language. I speak Hebrew fluently, but I don't know much Yiddish, but the idea of language being a cultural marker and we should save it and we should mm-hmm. preserve it and celebrate it. So um, my interest in Irish language and Shano singing sort of came together. And so about four years ago, um, I found a tutor through um, Dalti Nagelga, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a group of people who do these Irish language language weekends and they have a network of tutors you can find. And I found a tutor and then I found a teacher who coaches me in Shano singing, picked out the good songs for me, learned, um, I concentrated my musical sort of my, my song repertoire is mostly from the Donegal area. Um, even though I'm learning Connemara Irish, which, um, you know, if I come back and say Gamay instead of Gama to my (laughs) teacher, she laughs at me. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, so I started to learn, um, Irish with this tutor and taking classes at the Irish Arts Center, going on these Dalty weekends, um, and just really um, getting into the music. I love, what I love about Shannos, um, the Shannos singing is, it's not about the singing, right? I'm, I was raised, born and raised in opera and musical theater, and mm-hmm. it's a very larger than life um, sort of thing. I'm, I'm gesticulating largely as I say this, um, not a visual medium. Um, <laughs> and it's, um, I'm used to this performative nature, whereas in Shannos, the, the song, then the story of the song takes precedence. And often the style um, of singing is you'd stand behind a chair because you would be in someone's kitchen or someone's, you know, by someone's fireplace and you would take your spot to sing your song. And oftentimes people close their eyes and they become lost in the song and you're almost the medium for the song and the song tells its story. Um, And so that was a really huge learning curve for me, but super fun. And I learned a lot of Irish through those songs. I know the words for things like the woods and the glens 
friends and um, being morose about losing your lover all in Irish. Those were the first vocabulary mm-hmm. markers I had in the Irish language. So. Makes a nice change from you can pick me up at the, at the airport at this time and those kinds of letters that you're forced to write that never really happened in real life. Yeah, I, I learned, you know, I went through several different iterations of how are you and what kind of lodgings do you have, you know, in the in the Irish language textbooks. And on the other side, I'm learning about, you know, my lover is across the sea and married to someone else and and mm. uh, and those sorts of things on the other side. For sure. So when you, when you started singing your first kind of shadow songs, you did not understand the actual words you were kind of doing phonetically. Yeah, it? yeah. Um, and that was the way it was for me with Hebrew too. When I was a kid, you know, you'd be in these kid choirs and they would give you the words and they would spell it out phonetically. And I remember having like an epiphany the first time in Hebrew, I realized that those strings of syllables I was saying were words and I knew them, like I actually knew them. And I had a similar sort of revelation when I started to really learn the music, the, the Shano stuff, because I, you know, the Irish I was reading was very phonetic. And, and I suspect a lot of people, you know, you see a lot of kids at these flahana, particularly in the States, I think that might be how they're learning it. But hey, you're learning it it's getting into you even phonetically and mm-hmm. then you know you can pick up the pieces and learn you can always learn more later but yeah so now I'm definitely I sit down with um with my with my Tanglin app and I'm sitting down with my big dictionary next to me and I'm doing all the research and as as kind of a you know a word nerd and someone mm-hmm. who's a nerd generally um <laughs> I I really enjoy doing the sort of dramaturgy of it like figuring out where the song is from um who sang the song who learned the song from whom and a lot of people will put that that on their um, on their liner notes and on their websites now, these singers will will attribute the songs and who they learned that version from because there are tremendous variations in the in the folk tradition, which I love. And of course, it's a challenge for someone whose Irish is somewhat limited, but knows enough to know how much she doesn't know which verse, which version, and which verses I'm going to sing. And oh, well, this is different. For example, I did Maldiv was one of my songs, and the Clonid version is completely different um, than a different version I had heard from a different singer. Or not Clonet, I'm sorry, the Alton version. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Um, the Alton version um, is totally different because Donegal has a whole different version of the song. Same tune, different version of the song. So I had to make decisions as to what to sing. But I loved sitting down and learning the words and learning the vocabulary. And of course, dictionaries and the hyperlink on the on Tanglin, if you go onto the website, I'm like going off into all sorts of tangents and finding out new words that way, mm-hmm. um, which is really, which is really fun. How did you find the Tanglin app? And how long did you was were you using before you realized it pronounced words for you? <laughs> That's actually yesterday. I was this many days <laughs> old when I found out there was a pronunciation. No, it was actually very recently that um, mm. I realized that it has the grammar feature. When I've been using the app for about two years. Um, Thing is, you have to download a lot of information onto your phone to use the app, but I do use the web version on my mm-hmm. computer all the time, but it's great. I mean, I was going to Forvo and then there's the auber.ie also yeah. and doing all of that. But for a lot of the words, Tanglin has all of them on there. And that's been super helpful, especially for someone who is, you know, parsing out different dialects when I'm look, looking at songs from Donegal, but also learning the Connemara. And I guess I should have a shout out to Munster while we're at it. But um, Um, but that's yeah I was this many days old it was not that long ago that I realized that there's a little pronounce button off to the side yeah it takes some learning but it's a it's a phenomenal resource and multiple people use it and uh, I know some of you haven't dipped into yet and Changle.ie is a wonderful thing to go ahead and use it now if you're interested in using Irish Oh, I'm a man of your 
talking earlier there about um it's obviously we we are always interested in the art and craft of translation words and interpreting words this is something you do in your work and uh, we we're just talking there about say what happens sometimes when there's different interpretations of text and uh, this is something you do all the time yeah um so a lot of the work that I do in terms of the scholarly rabbinic side of my job, um, being a rabbi, by the way, as you had asked me before, yeah. um, there's lots of different things that rabbis do. Um, and um, I often think of, I had a calling to the Jewish people to serve a community rather than necessarily a calling to God. That my role, um, I actually have on my, I have a business card that says um, purveyor of joyful Judaism. Um, I once called myself a Jewish life enthusiast. That my role is to encourage communities and people to be their best selves and to do that through the tradition of Judaism. And part of what I do is what you would imagine perhaps what a priest does. I run services. I I, mm. I, I trade in liturgy and I, I make for me beautiful sort of sermons and musical experiences that are a liturgical beautiful spiritual experience through Judaism. So I do a lot of that, which you would expect, and do the pastoral care that comes with serving a community mm. from birth and life cycle events to funerals and counseling and all of the things that happen in between. Um, but primarily what I see my job is, is as an educator and as I said, that enthusiast to find that piece of the Jewish tradition and culture that speaks to you and brings your life some sort of meaning, whether that is through God, um, whether that is through Torah and Bible and study, or whether that is through community and the actions that we do as a community, right? So ideally you have all three. You have a communal moment of spiritual experience through services and through prayer, um, and you do some study, um, traditionally a Jewish prayer service involves um, taking out the Torah scroll and doing some reading of it, some chanting of it, and then um, together studying what we just read. And then the last piece of it is, as you would expect, we finish up and we have some nosh, we have some food together. Mm -hmm. um, so there's the community aspect. So in many ways, those three pieces can speak to a different person in different ways at different times. And so my job is to help you find that. Um, but one of the things that I do love the most is um, is the educational piece, is that by teaching, I'm always learning. And as you said, with translation, so Jewish texts, um, you know, we start with the Bible, we start with what, um, the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, um, which includes the Torah, the five books of Moses, the, the books of the prophets, and then what we call the writings, the things like Psalms, the things like Proverbs, books of Ruth and Esther and things like that. Um, and then beyond that is this whole body of literature that came up after the fact um, and is a body of tradition and interpretation. And it's an ongoing living document, as I had said before about how I feel about Irish music and about music and dance, that tradition is a beautiful thing. But by in order to preserve it best, we have to keep it alive and keep it changing. Um, mm -hmm. And so in um, where that comes into play is there's um, a body of Jewish text that comes later, the Mishnah and the Talmud. Mishnah is about 200 CE and the Talmud's about 500 CE. More or less, these are living documents that weren't codified. And part yeah. of it was oral, to oral tradition to begin with that got written down because they figured out people weren't remembering things as well as, you know, they thought they were. And so they wanted to codify what had been meant to be oral. Um, and so you have all of this 
in order to get at what is the basic bones of what God wants of us in our world, right? What our creator wants us to move in this world doing and feeling and being towards each other. Um, and so we do most of our studying in the original Hebrew um, and Aramaic. A lot of the, the later stuff comes out in Aramaic um, because precisely for this, Every translation, as you know, is an interpretation. And even when you're looking at the Hebrew, if I were to try to explain it to you right now in English, it would be colored by my worldview and colored by how I use the English language and how I see the world. So it comes up for some interesting conversations about what is meant in biblical verses. Um, and, you know, some people take those verses to be a little more fundamental and a little more literal. But in the Jewish tradition, it's never been meant to be full stop, literal, no interpretation. And there's more than one way to interpret something. And that comes up when, you, when you're looking at the translations and you're looking at the Hebrew. I heard it was described to me once as saying that, that the discussion is, in, is infallible, not the text itself, more than the text itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the actual, the right to discuss. But this is something, because obviously in Ireland we have the, um, the, the Bible has been translated into Irish, but this, the actual Irish language texts often has, has not been translated directly from Hebrew. It's been translated through and maybe uh, Latin or something into English and then into and then to Irish or yeah or there's been been other versions we will be we will be re- revisiting that topic as well because it's but say we but for some reason um, in the past uh, few years in Ireland Leviticus has kept being popped up <laughs> and not not the whole thing just maybe one or two verses Leviticus eighteen twenty two perhaps that verse that sounds very familiar yeah. yeah um yeah so. Um, it is Pride Month um, as we're mm-hmm. recording this, and I know that um, it's particularly on the Mother Fuckler account, we've been talking a little bit about um, Pride, and some folks have brought this up, brought up this sort of biblical situation. Um, so I find it, so yeah, so in the Jewish context, you know, we do still adhere to, at least traditionally, the rules that are laid out in Leviticus. So no shellfish, um, you know, some of those other sorts of rules that are often brought up in this conversation. Of course, we're talking about the the lines about homosexuality and we're talking about mm. um, and what those lines mean. And I often do get asked as a rabbi, well, what do you mean? Doesn't this, doesn't the Bible say, how can, how can you support pride when the Bible says that two men can't lay with each other or lie with each other? Um, and the, there's some really interesting, um, interpretation of this. And one of the, the principles of Jewish rabbinic interpretation is that we can take our modern understanding of things and we have more information now than we had 200 years ago, 50 years ago. Um, And every new piece of information that we as human beings have is seen as something that God has given us and has given us a tool through which to interpret our world and interpret our text. And so the newer information we have about certain things can inform um, how we interpret things. And in addition to the newer information, newer sort of moral Um, imperatives can color how we see our world. And so one way of looking at these lines that presume to or have been interpreted to be saying that consensual gay love is an abomination, um, that's a moral imperative um, to say that all human beings deserve love. And Mm -hmm. all human beings are worthy of love. And so, especially if you take a look at, if you look back, forget Leviticus for a second, if you look back at Genesis, one of the first lines in the first part of of the Bible is human beings were created in the image of God. 
in the image of God, God created them. And there's even some conversation about the first Adam, the first human being, actually being a transgender, double-gendered individual. This is the significance of the fig leaf, isn't it? That a fig is a hermaphroditic plant. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Ooh, I like that. Oh. Um, this is a little more towards the point of the of the of the translation piece. That if you look very closely at the Hebrew text, there's two versions of that story, um, in two parts of Genesis about a chapter apart. And when you look at them, it basically says, like I said, that um, God created them in God's image, and Zachar unikeva. Uh, male and female, God created them. And so there's there's um, actually space to say that God created a human being that was both genders, and then that that person was split into two. Um, and that is a start. If that's your starting point in the Bible, if you're saying that right from the very beginning, God wants to let us all know that each and every one of us was created in the image of God, that we don't mean that to mean the physical image of God, that we are God-like, that we are divine, that we are amazing, awesome human beings, then to turn around and say that some human being is less than awesome because of whom they love and whom they choose to partner with, that goes against that precept of what Judaism and the Bible teach us. So, so that's one starting point. When you then jump ahead to Leviticus, to this series of laws, there are interpretations that hinge on translating those lines and understanding what the words are in Hebrew, um, which, which if you look at the Hebrew, trying to do this succinctly, um, <laughs> I'm not very good at that. Rabbis talk a lot. But if you look at the Hebrew of Leviticus, what it is saying is that on its surface, it seems to say in the, the way that the English has translated it, that a man shall not lie with another man as he lies with a woman. It is an abomination. But there, the word mishkaveh, which means the lyings with, when it's used elsewhere in, in, the, in the Bible, it is used in a way that is a forceful, non-consensual sexual relationship. And so there's room to say that this verse, when taken with the other ones around it in Leviticus that are all about forceful, inappropriate sexual relations that are based on power and not on love, that this is saying you shall not force yourself on a man and potentially a woman as well, that forcing oneself onto them is not is forbidden by the Bible. That is the abomination. And so to then say that if you take that into account, alongside the idea that every human being is in God's image and worthy of love because God is love, then all of a sudden you're saying a whole different line with Leviticus 18.22. You're saying that Leviticus is teaching us that we should not use sexual intercourse as a power play, that we should not force ourselves on others, and that it is meant to be done in love. And so you take those two pieces together, and I can stand 100% behind a Jewish interpretation of the Bible that says that you love who you love because that person is God and that person is godly and deserves love just like you do. That's my mind's blown. This is fantastic. Um, we got to send you up north and <laughs> I bring it on. I'm that's, up for it. <laughs> that is, that, that's absolutely wonderful. And that's just, yeah, this gets giving me massive, massive food for thought. And <laughs> how do we follow that? Um, <laughs> hang on a second. I mean, I usually follow yeah. that with eschatology, but we oh, can yeah, table well, that. Well, <laughs> No, we 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 follow eschatology. Um, just I know um, I was and eschatology um, too. The other I, one. <laughs> oh, I was uh, I was fo I was following one uh, one of your friends, another an, another uh, rabbi on uh, 
what's her name? Don, Danya Ruttenberg. Danya Ruttenberg. And yeah. she was basically talking about some of the, uh, what's the word? She called it smutty Talmud. Yeah. Some of the some smutty elements of the Talmud. And it was, um, it was, it was, it was very, it was very different from the religious education I would have had in Gonzaga <laughs> College in Ranla. It was a little different than the religious education I had as well, by the way. Okay. <laughs> it's not what I was learning at mm. 12 and 13. Although I've come up with a whole curriculum based around this stuff that is a little bit more PG-13 to precisely entice high school students to learn that there's something that is funny and human and gloriously, ridiculously human about what our, our our tradition teaches us. And it's not all this sort of very inaccessible, sort of lofty spiritual thing that there's mm -hmm. this very, you know, Judaism is really, um, it's a way of life. It's a way of living the world. And, um, you know, it's a very earthy tradition as well. Um, there's this beautiful teaching that I'll start with before we get to the good stuff. That <laughs> is that, you know, human beings are sort of like the angels and sort of like animals. And we're sort of like the angels in that we can speak the holy tongue and we can praise our creator and we're capable of these lofty, beautiful things. So we're sort of like the angels, but we're also sort of like the animals. And the Talmud actually says, um, because we, we, we sleep, eat, sleep, poop and procreate. Yeah. And, I think it's that teaching right there is central to how I view Judaism is that we are capable as human beings of being really lofty, but our tradition also says you're human beings and you, and eating, sleeping, going to the bathroom and being in love are all gorgeous, amazing human experiences. And we're going to talk about those too. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So that's where Danya gets so, some of her amazing Torah from the list. <laughs> can I, so yeah, you, can you give us an example of this, of what you're referring to here? Yeah. So, okay. One of my favorites and Danya actually, um, mentioned this as well. Um, she mentioned it in the, in the, in the context of sex. Um, I tend to also teach it in the context of going to the bathroom. There's this beautiful piece of, well, beautiful is questionable, but this, <laughs> there's this teaching where three different times there's a disciple of some famous rabbi and imagine this young guy following his rabbi around and he follows him around to learn. He wants to learn everything. And we use the word Torah to refer to those five books of Moses and the scroll upon what, you know, that has those, has those teachings written on it. But Torah, also means teaching. So it means it in the broad sense. Torah is what you have to learn. So this guy follows his rabbi into the bedroom, goes under the rabbi's bed and the rabbi is in bed with his wife that night doing what you'd imagine. Mm -hmm. They were talking, yeah. chatting. And, um, and all of a sudden he sees his disciple under the bed and he says, what are you doing here? And his takeaway was this too is Torah and I must learn it. <laughs> and and then the second piece is he does the same thing. He follows him into the bathroom and he says, what are you doing in here with me? And he says, this too is Torah. He wanted to learn which direction to sit, how to mm -hmm. finish the job, all of those things. And what I love about these two pieces is when they're, they're comical. And I really do think the rabbis who wrote them meant them to be funny, yeah. right? Because poop is funny, right? Yeah. These are things that are funny, but they're also, they're also teaching us this valuable lesson that Torah and learning isn't just this lofty and attainable thing where it's in the, in the heavens and doesn't come down to earth, right? We're hat, we're part angels, we're part, 
we're part animals. And this is the part where we say we can bring holiness even into the bathroom, right? That we're not going to, <laughs> right? That there's, 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 there's intentionality to everything we do in life. In fact, Judaism has a, has a prayer that you say or a blessing that you say called Asher Yatsar, which means that which has come out of me. That oh. is literally a prayer that you say upon leaving the bathroom. And it refers to God and God's throne of glory, which of course makes me giggle mm. coming out of the bathroom. But then also says, thank you, God, for allowing that which needed to be open to flow freely and that which could have been blocked not to be blocked. I mean, it's a beautiful understanding of how the body works and that having your body work is a blessing. And it's also a prayer mm-hmm. that you say after you go to the bathroom. So, there you um, have it. <laughs> so this is my favorites. There's another bit of raunchier smutty Torah, if Oy. you're up for it. Um, well, in addition to different um, places where you where the rabbis talk about how how many times do you need to go home from the study hall and make sure to take care of your wife's needs. Um, they talk about this because lest you get too wrapped up in studying and doing these lofty things that you forget to yeah. go take care of your wife. There's actually a story about Rabbi Akiva almost didn't recognize his own son because he hadn't been home long enough and didn't know who the grown man in his house was. So um, there is some, some teaching about taking care of your family needs. But mm-hmm. my favorite piece is there is a piece... Of the Talmud, where the rabbis are sitting around, because imagine, you know, like Beowulf is epic, epic um, battle poetry and battle saga of one kind. The Talmud is our battle saga, but Mm. it's 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 um, mental battles and it's intellectual battles. But they're all sitting around. It's a little bit of a locker room. Like there's a bunch of guys sitting around in a room talking about what guys talk about. And one place, one of the rabbis says, you know, assuming it's forbidden to fillet someone. Okay. Is that the way I should put that? I don't know how to say it. Yeah. Um, assuming that is forbidden, what if you, and it is then forbidden to receive it, are you liable twice if you do this to yourself? <laughs> oh, I see. And then they go on to a conversation of, well, that's not possible. And they say, but is it? And they proceed to discuss how it is in fact possible to pleasure yourself. I see. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> I've never, I, well, I this, is, this has never come up in our podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've taken us to a new level. <laughs> the rabbi has brought us down a notch. Um, but, you know, there's also other things like, you know, it does, this is an epic, epic amount of paper. You know, the Talmud mm. is huge. It's a very, very big book. I mean, it's not a book. It's a number of books. And there are places where they talk about how do you do charity work? How do you help the, the poor in your community? There's a huge emphasis in Judaism about helping the stranger. You know, 36 times in the Torah does it say help the stranger because you were a stranger in the land of Egypt, right? So there's, there's this moral imperative and this moral impetus too, but you know, you can only talk about like lofty goals for so long before the conversation, much like this podcast often does, Mm -hmm. goes off on a tangent. Mm -hmm. So I always love those pieces because those are the human moments, right? That's the balancing again, the angel and the, and the animal instinct of being a human being. Um, So yeah, that's one of my favorite bits of Torah right there. (laughs) Fantastic. Assuming you don't edit that out. <laughs> see, see, sometimes you go by the name Sersha. I do. Why don't you tell us about that? 
So um, a few years back um, when I started going, uh, studying Irish more seriously, um, I was a bit jealous of people with photos in their name. <laughs> so, of course, I picked one without. Um, so you picked a name without a photo. Yeah. So, you know, I started going to Dalty weekends and um, and studying and learning. And um, I wanted to, in, in, in Judaism, we often have a Hebrew name. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're given your, your Hebrew or Jewish name um, when, you're, when you're born. And, you're, and I, throughout my Hebrew school career, used, I'm Sarah Chaya, is my name, Sarah and Chaya. Um, and when I'm called to the Torah for an honor, I'm used, now I'm Harav, which means the rabbi, Sarah Chaya, and then I am the daughter of my parents. Um, and so I love, I always embraced this identity that it's like a little different, you know, names give you power and give you a slightly yeah. different identity. Um, and that was my identity um, from a Jewish perspective. And Sarah, Sarah being one of our matriarchs, one of the founders of Judaism, Sarah and Abraham being the first two Jews in the, in the Bible, um, felt very empowering. Sarah also, Sarah also means princess. So that also felt kind of, you know, legit. Mm. Um, but I decided along the way that I wanted to have this, this persona that encapsulized my Irish side and, was pleased to find out when I went to these weekends, other people also sort of had taken and Irishized their names. Um, and Sheila didn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and my, we came up with Searsha because the C sound is like, I go by CC a lot. Cecilia is my full name, but CC is my name. And I also just loved the, the, um, the idea of freedom and the idea of that being a central core part of my identity, both Irish and Jewish, this idea of being freed from oppression, uh, personal, historical, um, cultural. Um, and so as I was sort of redefining myself and redefining who I am as a human being, it seemed to fit. So yeah, it's Mistress Trisha. It's Mistress Trisha. It's Trisha is going as the name is going through a real power moment at the moment. Between we've got three famous Searches in Ireland, all of whom were born in the nineties. As obviously Saoirse Ronan being the most famous, uh, bring her of her name. The Saoirse Monica Jackson, who is the star of Dairy, Dairy Girls. Girls. Yay, Absolutely. Dairy Girls. And Saoirse McHugh is uh, one of the very popular young uh, members of the Green Party as well, who did quite yeah. quite well in the European election. Not, didn't quite get over the line. But it's just, it's it's funny that for, there would have been, in the 80s and 70s, there would have been nearly no Saoirse's at all. And then now it's, uh, the name is rocking very hard. I think in the most... I think it was, it's, I think it's certainly in 2017, it was with the most popular um, of the girls' names that have of, of Irish origin. It was the most popular one that was of Irish origin, but certainly it's, it's rolling pretty hard at the moment. There was actually a baby name book that I found um, and it actually made the rounds on Twitter. The author's granddaughter was like, oh yeah, that's my, that's my grandfather. And he was as curmudgeonly as you think he was, hmm. um, wrote. And then the, in the entry for Saoirse, there was this beautiful piece about an anglicized form would be just ridiculous, was I yeah. think the words he used. <laughs> and um, I like um, that, that it's a very Irish concept. Truly. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's um, definitely the idea of taking an Irish word for freedom and saying, oh, let's. Let's make it a bit more English, shall we? You know, it uh, <laughs> doesn't work. No, definitely. Before we wrap up today, it's been so wonderful to chat to you. I'm going to ask you, we always ask people for a favorite Irish word. Yeah. Okay, but I'm also going to ask you for a favorite Irish and a favorite Hebrew word. Oh, um, oh gosh, I wasn't prepared for that last one. <laughs> okay. Throw me a curveball. So my favorite Irish word um, actually um, is evenness. Oh. Um, I found it. Uh, on a list of all places, I'm embarrassed to admit, from BuzzFeed of like words you should know in Irish. Mm. And it 
conveys, at least according to the meme, um, this this bliss and happiness that comes from things like music and art and nature. And so, of course, I took out my dictionary and looked it up. And first, the sound of it, evenness, sounds to me like almost like a smile and a sigh yeah. of joy and bliss. Um, and my moving in this world and my decision to be a rabbi was to help bring that kind of evenness to people and bring them that kind of joy. Um, and by all the things that are around us that can inspire us to beauty and joy. Fantastic. Hebrew, my favorite Hebrew word. Um, Even this is one that comes to mind. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, that um, Aliza means happy is one of the many different words for happy. Um, mm. It's also a word that is often used. Aliz or Aliza is also um, a word that is used for gay. Mm. Um, not as commonly, but in modern Hebrew, it is one of the terms that is used. And Aliza is Alice for Alice in Wonderland. Um, but I love this Aliza, the same kind of alliterative um, onomatopoeic sort of sense of happiness and joy having this brightness to it. Um, so that's one of those words I think I'll end with, Aliza. That's wonderful. Sersha C.C. Byer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So, until the next time, it's a salon from me. And it's a salon from me. Take care. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Now, what taught me Jewish mothers is it takes to change a light bulb. I'll just sit in the dark. We tell the same joke with Irish moms. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet you do. <laughs>